This week on Viewpoints. I think it's universally true across various industries, be it restaurants, be it retailers, be it households, people don't know how much they're wasting. In the U.S., nearly 40% of food produced ends up in the trash. Then... It's going 17,000, roughly 500 miles per hour. As soon as it hits the atmosphere, everything starts to heat up. Commemorating 40 years since the birth of the NASA Space Shuttle, I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Over the past year, I've helped thousands turn their lives around. And today, I'm going to tell you the one simple trick that will change everything. All you have to do is... And now a message from our sponsor. With Progressive, you can bundle your boat, RV, or other outdoor vehicle for great protection and even more savings. Progressive. And that's it. You'll have that for the rest of your lives. I'm so excited for you. Progressive. There's never a bad time for great protection. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. Sorry to interrupt your jams, murder mystery podcasts, or motivational beach noises, but we got something else you might like to hear. It's called cash. That's the sound of an extra 250 bucks after your first 10 deliveries with Uber Eats. That's right, an extra $250 on top of all the other cash you'll make during those first 10 deliveries. If that sounds good, visit t.uber.com slash extra 250. Uber Eats, deliver with us. Limited time offer. Terms apply. See t.uber.com slash extra 250 for more details. Each day, about one pound of food per person is wasted in our country, according to the USDA. By the end of the year, this equates to more than 81 billion pounds of safe, high-quality food thrown into the garbage. And it's not just happening here. Food waste is a global issue. Worldwide, it's really roughly one-third of all food produced is wasted. And that is equivalent to about $1 trillion of dollars per year. That's a staggering $1 trillion. That's Dr. Elena Belavina, an associate professor of operations management at Cornell University and an expert on food waste. She highlights that where this waste happens along the supply chain changes based on the country. In the developed world, it happens in the later part of the supply chain, like retailers, restaurants, households. In developing world, it happens more in earlier part of the supply chain because those parts are not developed well enough. There's storage, transportation, and all of those issues that come together to generate a lot of waste, while consumers waste very little. In the U.S. specifically, nearly 40% of all food produced is wasted. Belavana says that much of where this waste happens is in the retail and consumption stages of the fresh grocery supply chain. There can be some issues during manufacturing, transportation, and quality checks, but the biggest culprit is that so much food goes uneaten and is then thrown away at homes, grocery stores, and restaurants. Consumers in the U.S. throw about 25% of what they buy. Staggering 25%. Hard to believe that we actually just a quarter of what we buy, we just simply throw away. Instead of going into the bin, this uneaten food could have been redirected to the hungry. Feeding America is the largest food rescue organization in the U.S. and estimates that this year about 42 million Americans may experience food insecurity. That's 13% of the overall U.S. population. In addition to the ethical implications of food waste, 
There are also negative environmental effects. If we think about, kind of, we try to compare it to just food waste and loss itself, right? Not the entirety of food, just the part that we're throwing away. The carbon footprint of just food waste is comparable to all road transportations, cars, trucks, and all, which is unbelievable. So the impact of just the things that we waste is humongous on our environment. It's about 8% of all the emissions that are generated out there. Once food is in a landfill, it emits methane, a greenhouse gas that contributes to global warming. So, what can be done to reduce the amount that ends up in a dump? Balavana says that one issue is this model of overabundance in grocery stores. This means piled high apples, endless stacks of vegetables, and fully stocked shelves with so many niche products. Right now, the abundance of food and how cheap it is makes it rational for the grocery stores to stock up a lot so that their consumers are really happy that they see a lot of high stacks in the stores and um, that pleases the eye and that makes us potentially purchase more. It's just a proliferation of various SKUs, the various items that we see in the grocery store. That contributes a lot to food waste as well. And an optimization of that and kind of understanding of that and changing how much of variety do we stock in the stores, that's definitely been an important component in addition to forecasting and kind of understanding how to streamline the supply chain. Belavina says that she is seeing a shift among some retailers and restaurants that have taken steps to be more cognizant of food waste. One driver has been improvements in technology that help pinpoint issues in the food chain by tracking what's being thrown away and then adjusting future inventory based off these numbers. Retailers adopting so many different new solutions that come from the startup world. A lot of it in really predicting demand, really understanding what we are selling, et cetera, et cetera. Some of it in really packaging. We've seen startups like Synoptica appear who produce this incredible packaging sensors for meat, actually, so that when, you know, that there the problem is um, a lot of packaging at the manufacturing plants get damaged. And by the time it reaches the store already, and no one knows it, right? It's not seen by the by anyone in the supply chain. So there's no that sensor that can tell you. And then by the time it reaches the store, it's already no good. The product is no good for the consumer. And so with that simple sensor, they can change it and reduce the food waste drastically. Another solution in this fight against food waste is organizations that redirect unused food from retailers and restaurants to the people who need it. One example is City Harvest, a nonprofit group operating across New York City that picks up excess inventory from more than 2,500 local food donors. Over the past year, they've salvaged and delivered more than 144 million pounds of food. We now have a fleet of 26 trucks that are on the road seven days a week, picking up excess food from all across the food industry. So supermarkets, restaurants, farms, wholesalers, all sorts of different places. And then we distribute it to a network of about 400 partner agencies, completely free of charge. That's Jenna Harris, the Senior Manager of Donor Relations and Supply Chain at City Harvest. According to internal numbers, about a third of the food the organization receives routinely comes from manufacturers and wholesalers. 11% is from supermarkets, and roughly 3% is from bakeries and quick-service restaurants. 
Harris says that one common question that new partners ask is if they're legally liable for the food they donate. A lot of people don't know, but there's something called the Good Samaritan Act, which essentially, if you're donating food in good faith, you can't be sued for anything that happens after. So it really does cover the donor as long as they're donating food that's still in good condition and good quality, that it's perfectly safe and legal for them to do that. Once the food is picked up from donors, City Harvest distributes it to the needy. One method of delivery is via nine mobile markets they set up across the city. These hubs are essentially farmers' markets, where New Yorkers facing food insecurity can pick up free groceries. Harris says that many of the items offered are fresh and packed with nutrients. What we rescue every year is typically about 60% is produce. Nutrition is a really important thing for us to keep in mind for our agencies. So being able to distribute fresh produce to people all across the city is one of our key goals. And we try to make sure we adhere to that. But that said, we do accept pretty much any type of food. We get lots of meat, lots of dairy a lot of packaged food. Since COVID started, shelf-stable packaged food has been in really high demand, so we always are bringing in a lot of that. City Harvest estimates that the elevated need due to COVID will continue past this year into 2022. If you are fortunate enough to be able to afford groceries without difficulty, keep in mind the ways you can help curb food waste and how your decisions influence the supply chain. The next time you're at the grocery store, ask yourself, Are there items that you buy that routinely go to waste? Can you buy fresh fruits and vegetables in smaller quantities? You can also help by assisting organizations like City Harvest that redirect excess food. We're actually in the middle of our annual campaign called Share Lunch, Fight Hunger, which raises crucial dollars to help feed families experiencing food insecurity during the summer months when children may not have access to free school meals. So for more information for that, people can go to cityharvest.org forward slash share lunch. We have a lot of really great partnerships going on right now with restaurants where they're doing special promotions to help fundraise for us. And as well, if if people are interested, they can text the word lunch to 20222, and that will allow people to donate $15 to the campaign, which is enough to feed 41 children for a day, which is amazing. And yes, any, you know, restaurants or anyone's ever interested in getting involved with City Harvest, they're always welcome to check out our website. We have some information there about how to become a food donor. We'd love to hear more. People can also volunteer or donate online by visiting cityharvest.org. To learn more about this topic and both of our guests, Dr. Elena Belavina and Jenna Harris, visit viewpointsradio.org. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter and Facebook. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri. I'm Gary Price. Coming up, the NASA shuttle that launched it all when Viewpoints returns. A third of Americans think we will all be eating meat-free diets in the future, and the future is closer than you think. A recent survey of 2,000 Americans conducted by one poll reveals the average person thinks we'll all be meat-free by 2039. That's just 18 years away. Of the 52% surveyed who don't think that going plant-based is realistic right now, one in five worries that it's too expensive. 
But Vegan Strong National Tour Director and multi-sport athlete Robert Cheek says, think again. Plant-based eating can be incredibly affordable if you focus on eating fruits, vegetables, beans, rice, nuts, and seeds. Going vegan is better for your health, your wallet, and the earth. During the pandemic, more than half of people have even made a game of cooking at home. And more people than ever have found themselves trying new foods they never thought they would. For more information, check out veganstrong.com. That's veganstrong.com. To remind pet owners that Progressive covers pets on our auto policy at no extra charge, we decided to make a really cute pet-themed radio commercial. Can you hear that puppy? If you could see this, you would melt. I mean, just the softest fur. Oh, wait. He's trying to open this box now. And, oh, the box is filled with kittens. If only there was some way you could see this. <laughs> what a glaring oversight. Get coverage for your pets with an auto policy from Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Coverage for cats and dogs included with the purchase of collision coverage and is subject to policy terms. Sorry to interrupt your jams, murder mystery podcasts, or motivational beach noises, but we got something else you might like to hear. It's called cash. That's the sound of an extra 250 bucks after your first 10 deliveries with Uber Eats. That's right, an extra $250 on top of all the other cash you'll make during those first 10 deliveries. If that sounds good, visit t.uber.com slash extra 250. Uber Eats, deliver with us. Limited time offer, terms apply. See t.uber.com slash extra 250 for more details. The televised countdown, the roar of engines, a majestic, fiery blast. The sequence of a space shuttle launch is a sight quite unlike anything else in this world. It encompasses, in many ways, the ingenuity and perseverance of humans to push past boundaries and explore deeper into the unknown. The first time this kind of flight took place was 40 years ago on April 12, 1981 at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida with the space shuttle Columbia and a crew of two astronauts. The launch itself of Columbia in 1981 was a truly exciting experience. Space flight had sort of become passe over time. People were excited by the moon landings. But the flights that took place in the 1970s were of less significance to most people. And no American astronaut, anyway, had been into space since 1975. So there's now a new excitement that starts to emerge in the spring of 81 as people prepare for this space shuttle launch. And it was a truly remarkable experience. That's Roger Launius, a space historian and former chief historian of NASA. Lanius says the space shuttle was so intriguing back in the day because it could take off like a rocket and land back on Earth like a plane. It was also the first partially reusable spacecraft, with the engines, hull, and control systems all being built to last. The space shuttle was an unusual-looking vehicle for what had gone before. Previously, there had been a rocket with a capsule on top, Mercury capsule, the Gemini capsule, or the Apollo capsule. This looked very much like an airplane, and that was the intention. It was to launch attached to the side of a large launch rocket, but itself would go into space from there and then come back and land like an airplane. And one astronaut told me, he says, you have to remember that you're sitting on top of a small nuclear weapon. At least that's how much power is in the space shuttle if it were to 
blow up. And of course, one did in 1986 with tragic, horrible consequences. But most of the time, virtually all the time, it's under human control, and the astronauts flew 135 times into space on space shuttles during a 30-year period. Over these many missions, the space shuttle fleet spearheaded some of the biggest milestones in NASA and space history. This includes the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope in 1990 and several flights and spacewalks to help build and service the International Space Station, which has been in operation since 2001. Lanius says that another early aim of the program was to offer a safe and reliable way to fly civilians to space. However, among the many successes were also some big failures. We had unique flights in which members of Congress were flown. And by 1985, the shuttle is looking to be a routine space access vehicle, which was its intention. That's what it was supposed to do. And quite frankly, people became complacent. On the 25th flight, the launch of Challenger in January of 1986, in which it takes off and 73 seconds into the flight, it's heading off into space, and we see this enormous explosion. And the crew is lost. The vehicle is lost. I mean, it's a tragic of immense proportions. In 1967, three astronauts were killed in a flash fire during a ground testing in preparation for the first Apollo mission. Up until Challenger, NASA had never lost astronauts during an in-space flight. It was devastating. The people at NASA believed that they had a vehicle that they could count on. They thought it was a more routine activity than it actually turned out to be. You realized after the fact that the space shuttle was, and always would be, really an experimental vehicle, one in which you had to be very cautious to ensure that it could fly successfully. Lanius notes that after the Challenger disaster, the fleet was grounded for more than two years until 1988. When it returned, many Americans were excited and rallied together to support the relaunch of the space shuttle program. For more than a decade, a large number of missions took place without issue. However, this came to an abrupt halt in 2003 when the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated as it re-entered Earth's atmosphere, killing all seven crew members on board. After this second disaster, support started to quickly dwindle. There were a lot of people who thought, you know, maybe it's time to move on. NASA had been trying to move on for a number of years. They had plans in the works, uh, frustrated plans as they turned out to be, to build a replacement vehicle for the space shuttle. And several of the programs that had been undertaken had gotten to a point where they were too expensive or the technical challenges were too great, and they had to sort of stop that program, retrench, and start over. And that had happened over and over again. But after the loss of Columbia, it became obvious that we needed to do something different. And almost a year later, in January of 2004, President George W. Bush announced that the shuttle would retire. He set a date of 2010. That was extended by a year to finish the work necessary to complete the International Space Station. In July 2011, 
the space shuttle Atlantis landed at the Kennedy Space Center, marking the final flight of the program. Today, almost a decade later, the landscape of space travel is very much alive. More private entities like SpaceX have entered the space travel arena and are partnering with NASA to head into orbit. Most famously, SpaceX's Falcon 9 and Dragon capsule has been carrying cargo to the space station for several years, and last year began flying astronauts to the station. Lanius predicts that the next milestones in space travel will focus on the moon and other missions like those to Mars and beyond. Ultimately, I would like to think in the next decade or so, some sort of a base on the moon probably will look a lot like Antarctica, dedicated for scientific purposes, people cycling in and out on a regular basis. And that's sort of the fulfillment of NASA's vision of exploration, in my mind. Also, as more private entities enter the industry, Lanius says civilian space travel is back on the table as a very real possibility. But don't pack your bags quite yet. It's still an extremely hefty price tag. There have already been tourists in space. Some have paid to fly on Soyuz capsules into Earth orbit to go to the space station for a period of time. Dennis Tito was the first of those space tourists to fly, but several others have done so since that time. We're going to see more of that as the future unfolds. While future endeavors show promise, the past shows the brilliance of humans who dreamt big and dove headfirst into the unknown. From 1981 to 2011, the space shuttle program was a pioneer in space. Despite some tragedies along the way, it paved a path and created an infrastructure that humans rely on every day. Across these many missions, thousands of satellites entered orbit, and astronauts maneuvered through difficult tasks and spacewalks in an effort to build a home away from home. One of the really significant things that came out of the space shuttle program was that it made Earth orbital activities routine. Before this time, with Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo, with the Russian capsules that they were flying. It was truly an adventure. It was a frontier, if you will, and you didn't know quite what to expect. But the shuttle, with 30 years of experience, made space orbital activities pretty much routine. We could go up, we could rendezvous, we could dock with things, we could, we could perform spacewalks, we could retrieve satellites, we could deploy satellites, we could do all kinds of things in orbit, and we understood what was taking place there, and it's no longer a frontier. It's now been incorporated into the normal realm of human experience. The shuttle did that. To find out more about the U.S. Space Shuttle Program, check out Roger Launius's new book, NASA Space Shuttle, 40th Anniversary. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter and Facebook. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri. Studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. What are you going to do with your old car? You can try selling it, you could junk it, or you can donate it to Heritage for the Blind. Your car will be towed away for free and your donation is tax deductible. Just call 1-800-835-1478. 
Heritage for the Blind accepts cars, vans, trucks, and boats. It doesn't matter if your vehicle runs or not. It will be towed away for free, and you'll be supporting those that need help. Heritage for the Blind is a nonprofit organization that helps the visually impaired live fuller lives. Call right now to donate your car, and as a special thank you, you'll receive a free three-day vacation voucher to over 50 locations. Call Heritage for the Blind right now. Call 1-800-835-1478. Donating is easy, and your vehicle is towed away for free. Plus, you'll get a free vacation voucher for donating. Call now, 1-800-835-1478. That's 1-800-835-1478. Welcome to Culture Crash, where we examine what's new and old in entertainment. Little Fish, a movie that was recently added to Hulu's streaming offering, is so current and relevant that it's honestly pretty chilling that it was made before the COVID-19 pandemic. Little Fish is a love story set in a world where a different kind of pandemic is sweeping the globe. In the movie's universe, a virus is spreading that erases people's memories, and the film plays its premise entirely straight. There is no cheats or really even any comedic relief. It's an emotional, introspective film, but it's quite lovely, and it portrays many of the emotional highs and lows that so many of us have experienced since March 2020. It shows how lonely a pandemic world can be and just how willing desperate people are to try desperate measures. The film is driven by excellent performances from Olivia Cook and Jack O'Connell, both of whom are really interesting performers I expect we'll be seeing a lot of over the next few decades. Little Fish is certainly a heavy watch, and my wife and I had to turn some comedic relief on immediately afterward, but it's also a beautiful look at a couple hoping to cling to their memories of each other and a stirring piece of filmmaking that boasts some great cinematography and writing. It's a movie that will certainly feel familiar to all of us who lived through the COVID-19 pandemic but isn't literally tied to that reality, like the film Songbird or some of the other COVID-era TV and movie options are. Little Fish is differentiated enough from our reality that it should be able to stand the test of time and pull at heartstrings for years to come. Little Fish is now streaming on Hulu. I'm Evan Rook. Sorry to interrupt your jams, murder mystery podcasts, or motivational beach noises, but we got something else you might like to hear. It's called cash. That's the sound of an extra 250 bucks after your first 10 deliveries with Uber Eats. That's right, an extra $250 on top of all the other cash you'll make during those first 10 deliveries. If that sounds good, visit t.uber.com slash extra 250. Uber Eats, deliver with us. Limited time offer, terms apply. See t.uber.com slash extra 250 for more details. I'm not going very far. It's too uncomfortable. I'm in a hurry. Sometimes I just forget. There's no such thing as a good excuse for not buckling up. You're not only putting yourself at risk of injury or death, it could also cost you lots of money. Cops are writing tickets, so why take the risk? 
Do the smart thing and start buckling up every trip, day or night. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. And that's Viewpoints for this week. Viewpoints is a production of MediaTrax Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows. And find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.